Thanks for joining me, Pete Holterin, for the Credentials Only Podcast, where you are introduced to people who work in sports. Today's guest is Nate Ferguson. You may not know much about Nate's handiwork, but there's a very good chance that you have seen it on display during the biggest tennis matches of the last 30 years. Nate is a racket stringer and customizer, having started working with Pete Sampras in 1990 before eventually starting his own company, Priority One, in 1998. It was uh, slow. There's no such thing as advertising to the number 20 player in the world. It, they need to know you. They need to talk about rackets. And they have to be aware of what their equipment is. There are guys and girls out there who just don't care. With upwards of 10 clients on the roster at any given time, there could be some very busy days, especially during the world's largest tournaments. It's no surprise that there's a secret that helps him get through those days. Standing and stringing rackets requires just the right footwear. As long as you have comfortable footwear, and mine are my uh, 10, 12-year-old Adidas sliders that I string in, I'm good. Nate does not count how many matches, tournaments, or even Grand Slam titles his players have won. That is the entire purpose of our lives, to help these top players win tournaments. It's as much a job security kind of thing as it is personal pride. He was also kind enough to share some advice for what impact the right racket could have on a recreational player. It can make a huge amount of difference if the player is good and they're not playing with the right equipment and they get to concentrate more on playing the game instead of fighting the equipment. While you listen, visit credentialsonly.com for show notes that include more information on what we discussed in this episode. And please take a moment, leave a review wherever you access your podcasts. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Nate Ferguson on Credentials Only. Nate, thanks for taking the time to join me. Uh, as you look at your annual budget, what's a ballpark of the line item for excessive luggage fees? If we are able to fly on our United Airlines regularly scheduled flight, zero. However, stat. if we have to fly Swiss Air from Basel to Switzerland or from Basel to Paris or something like that, then it gets expensive in a hurry. So a single fare in, within Europe can be 200 euro with 600 euro excess baggage fee. That is why you relish that status with United. Correct. Worth its weight in gold. Absolutely. Okay, and, and then you get on the plane and you're going to Basel or Paris or Shanghai and the person next to you says, what do you do? How do you answer that question? I say, I'm a CPA. Certified public accountant? Right. Because you don't want to talk about what you really do. It ends the conversation quickly, but don't get me wrong. I'm a nice guy. I don't lie all the time. But if she's cute, I'm going to tell her all about the Roger Federer stories I can grab out of my, out of my pocket. However, <laughs> you know, typically when I get on a long flight to Shanghai, I've had a, uh, a beverage or two in the lounge before boarding, and I'm glad to discuss what I do. And what that job title is is i guess a, a racket stringer and customizer is, how, is there a technical term for what you do um, i just say i custom build and restring rackets for touring professionals and then they That's say concise. what 
and they look at me with one eye kind of crooked and what does that mean? So when you take this show on the road to customize and restring these rackets and you have this 600 euros worth of equipment, what all is in those cases that you're lugging with you? Uh, we each travel with a stringing machine. The base of the stringing machine goes in one big white case, the biggest one. And that weighs, without anything else in there, Pete, that weighs about 66, 68 pounds, depending on the scale you find at the airport. <laughs> so we don't get to put much else in there. The small-er white case, we put our turntable in it. That's the heaviest part other than the stringing machine itself. And we put a bunch of tennis string reels and grips and our diagnostic equipment and things like that in there. We blow that baby right up to 68, 70 pounds. And then we have a, a soft bag, a giant soft bag that would be equivalent to a goalie equipment bag in size. And then we load that up with the excess strings and grips, rackets if necessary and the things like racket bags and tapes and assorted other equipment we use on a week in and week out basis. And we have just a little bit of room for our own personal clothing. A change of clothes, maybe two. Couple two, depending on what the laundry situation is at the Airbnb we're staying at. So you go into an Airbnb and you have all this equipment. Are you just stacking the furniture on one side of the room and then making a, a stringing studio out of the rest of it? Almost always, yes. Because our, our rentals aren't typically huge places, especially if you go to Rome or go to Paris. They're fairly small. So depending on what the bedroom situation is, if there's enough room in one of the bedrooms to put a stringing machine on a table, we'll do it there. But if we have to make the main room, the living room, the stringing room, then although we're tied to the side walls usually because that's where the electricity is, we will typically get a fairly sturdy table that we can have as uh, the stringing machine table on which we'll put two machines. And then we'll, like you said, we'll push the chairs and sofas around so that we can sit and eat and sit in uh, grip rackets and things like that. So Airbnb and, and all those, the, the rentals online like that has to have revolutionized your, your business to not have to only be limited to hotels and make it a lot easier to find the apartments and be a little bit more comfortable for you. Exactly, and it's what I would call upgrade because I would much rather stay in a home or apartment than in a hotel room. And when we've got two of us traveling, it can provide a little bit of time to get away, even though you're in the apartment. And the time that you guys are on the road, let's start with the first question of how many weeks do you guys travel? Well, with a master series and grand slams, we start there. So that is depending on how early we get there. That is almost, that's 18, 19 weeks of travel right there. If you add the tournaments where some of our top clients want us to travel to additionally, you know, Novak wants someone in Tokyo. Roger always wants someone in Basel. Roger always wants someone in Halle. We can add a couple, three tournaments 
for each of us there. So we're over 20 weeks a year. And when you're at those tournaments and when you're just in Basel for Fed, it's probably a little bit different. But when you're at a Masters 1000 at the Grand Slam, what kind of hours are you clocking? Well, it depends on how many of our guys are playing. If they're all playing, it gets a little, a little tiresome in the beginning. It's a lot of hard work because everyone's in the tournament. Everyone is practicing on off days. As the tournament goes along, it gets less and less because players lose, obviously. But I've functioned on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday of a Grand Slam for the first two rounds with only three or four hours of sleep each day. I'm glad you said each day. There was a moment there where I thought you might say in total, and that was going to worry me a little bit. Right. I pass out if it gets that serious. Functioning on that little sleep is hard in, in the best of circumstances. There's actually some physical demands, though, I would think, to, to your job. What, what is the toll on you physically having to do this? Yes, it's not, uh, it's not that stressful, believe it or not. But standing and stringing rackets requires just the right footwear. As long as you have comfortable footwear, and mine are my uh, 10, 12-year-old Adidas sliders that I string in, I'm good. You can adjust if your feet get tired from standing so for so long in the same shoes. Just put on your running shoes, your sneakers, and you're good to go. You're wearing a pair of 10-year-old kicks to be stringing all these rackets all day? Yes, and believe it or not, they are the most comfortable shoes. I've tried to find replacements, new ones. They're not the same. All right. Hey, what, you got to find what works. Uh, exactly. Do you have to do, you do things during the day to... You know, do you have stretching routines? You keep your fingers nimble, something to just kind of loosen yourself up rather than being hunched over that turntable all day? Um, two things. No, I really don't do that type of thing. It's, if, it's, if I'm really busy and you know, I'm stringing 20, 25 rackets in a day, the good thing to do is to sit down, to get off my feet, especially when you include the time we walk to and from the courts and are waiting around for players if I don't have a seat. But the good thing is I've custom built legs that go into the bottom of my stringing machine that raise the stringing machine up to an appropriate tight for me. So I'm 6'2", and I've got the turntable, so it is chest high. So I'm not leaning over and hunching down to get to my equipment. That's the most important thing about having a comfortable stringing setup is make sure the stringing machine is at the proper height. That might be the most valuable customization of your career then, that uh, those modified legs. Yep, those six, six and a half inch legs that I put on each corner of the stringing machine base. We joked about budgets to open this, but what is your business model for Priority One? How, is, how have you made this stringing and customization into a business? Well, when I started it with Pete Sampras back in 1998, he wanted to know what it was going to cost him because the people out there on tour would charge a low set amount and then just recharge stuff whenever they felt they could get away with it. So although the players signed up for you know a $10,000 deal, in six months, 
they'd already paid, you know, $30,000. So I wanted to take the mystery out of it. And of course, I would never do something like uh, convenient billing or something like that when I needed money. So I said, flat fee for a year's worth of tournaments. And we charge a flat fee for those eight Master Series and Grand Slams now and four, sorry, four Grand Slams, so 12 tournaments, and you pay one fee. So you're not keeping track of how many rackets per guy or anything like that. You've got, you're on retainer, basically. Correct. You mentioned that this started with Pete Sampras. How did you get introduced to Pete in the first place? I was the guy custom building and stringing a lot of rackets for a gentleman named Warren Bosworth. And we were out of Connecticut at the time, just outside of Hartford, Connecticut. And we were working for Yvonne Lendl. He was our best client, number one in the world. And through IMG and I think Pete, Peter Johnson at the time, um, Pete Sampras had a favorite racket and had heard about our reputation at Bosworth International and wanted to chat and see what the deal was, how we would go about duplicating his favorite racket. He was in Cincinnati at the time. He said, Nate, my racket's about to, uh, to go. I was on the phone with him that day. And he says, uh, what happens? How does this whole thing go down? when my favorite racket is no longer of any use to me. I say, well, you're gonna send it to us as fast as possible. We're gonna make a handle mold of your racket handle so that we can duplicate what it is you feel with your right hand when you pick up the racket. Of course, we will then do weight balance and swing weight based on that model racket you send us and we'll go from there. So he sent three rackets and his model racket, which had cracked and we went about our procedure built him three examples of what we can do with our customizing. And he liked it and sent us another nine rackets. So he had 12 brand new, freshly built rackets before he went to the U.S. Open in 1990. Very early in his career. And I think for a lot of players, once they find something that works, they're not going away from it. You're right. It was very early in his career. He had his brother doing his racket customizing up to that point, which is how he got that funky butt cap rounded. And, you know, his brother would take the grip off and use an X-Acto knife or some kind of knife. Could have got it from the kitchen for all I know. And rounded off the butt cap because Pete held the racket very low on the handle. And of course, him winning the U.S. Open with these brand new 12 rackets that I'd custom made for him, uh, it didn't hurt our, our, our place of business. Yeah. I, I want to ask a lot more about customization, but I want to stick with the business model first. So you were with Pete until 98 when you started Priority One. Is it just word of mouth then how you develop a client base? Yeah, it's almost accurate, as you said. I worked with Warren Bosworth until 1998 when we were customizing all of Pete's rackets and sending to him, them to him. He was on a year-by-year year struggle trying to get his rackets restrung tight enough on the road. So he hired a company to string for him on the road. But the, this company would only do it if they also custom-built his rackets. They couldn't do that. 
because he was extremely finicky about his grips, his handles, the way the leather wrapped, the way the butt cap felt. I mean, out of the world finicky, as he put it, the, the choice of words that he made. So in 1998, after he'd been number one in the world five consecutive years, uh, he said, Nate, will you come on the road with me? I said, yes. We agreed on a fee. I went everywhere he went. And at the end of the year, I said, okay, this is great, but I've got a you know, wife and two kids. Will you bump me up a little bit? Yes. And I worked for him for the last five years of his career, stringing all his rackets, customizing all his rackets out of my house in Boca Raton, Florida, and um, going to every one of his matches. And you mentioned that part of that was because he wanted them strung tight enough. Does he have, did he play with unusually tight strings? Yes, he not only, he was difficult for people to string his rackets. Uh, he played with natural gut, which no one uses anymore. He played with very thin string. And he played at super tight tensions. So the combination of very fragile natural gut strings being strung at 75 pounds, 34 kilos, made many a stringer sweat because it was so easy to break that string. So you get those years on the road with Pete. How do you then grow this into a business with a couple employees and a, a full stable of clients? Yeah, it was uh, slow, but it was like you said earlier, it was a matter of word of mouth. There's no such thing as advertising to the number 20 player in the world you know, come string with Nate's rackets or priority one or whatever. It, they need to know you. They need to talk about rackets. And they have to be aware of what their equipment is. There are guys and girls out there who just don't care. Their contracted racket manufacturer will give them rackets and they'll play with them. Those are not clients that are going to end up paying the extra cost for me to travel with Ron to all the master series and grand slams with the same equipment year round, year after year and string their rackets. They're just not that into it. So after solving Pete's problems for five years and everyone knew Pete was a royal problem when it came to people stringing his rackets and custom building his rackets. And all of a sudden his problems went away when we started working together full time. So after that, it was just word of mouth. And developed into what's the, the most you've had at one time working with you guys? I say at one time we had 11, maybe even, no, I think it was 11, what I call gold service clients. So that is clients that will pay us to go to all the Master Series and Grand Slam events to string their rackets on a year-round basis. Is everybody getting the same level of service or do you offer some different packages? Well, <clears throat> for the guys on the road, everyone gets the same level of service. It's unlimited number of rackets practice and matches and it's whether you lose first round or win all the way through to the final it's the same price on an annual basis it's up to you the player to make it worthwhile that's all but beyond the stringing at tournaments we have a deal for players who don't mind getting their rackets strung at the on-site stringers but are 
paying attention to what their rackets feel like in their hands. The grip, the length, the weight, the balance, and the swing weight. We will also be more than happy to custom build players' rackets and send them to each player, and they can get them strung on the road. So that is a much less costly uh, fee structure for them. And without getting overly specific here, putting you on the spot, what is the investment for a player when they get into this type of customization? Not a big investment at all. We charge $6,000 for a series or a group of 30 rackets. A player can use them four rackets at a time, or they can use them in 10 racket batches at a time. There's no expiration date. We front the cost of building a permanent handle mold for that player's racket. And then they get us to ship them to them whenever they need them. We'll order the rackets and the equipment from the manufacturer. And all they have to do is let me know or Ron know when they want a new batch of rackets and there it will arrive via FedEx. You've mentioned Ron a few times. Who is Ron and how did he come to be part of Priority One? Ron Yu, I met for the first time in 2001, believe it or not, when he was traveling for Andre. So I was traveling for Pete at the time and he was part of a different team that did not work for me, of course. And uh, I got to know him on the road. And he seemed like a really good guy. He ended up uh, parting ways with his employer, and I hired him as fast as I could. During the bigger matches, there's always the cutaway to the player box. You see the coach, the physio, now there's nutritionists and all, all these people in these player boxes. Even the shoe company has someone in there. The clothing company has somebody in there. You guys are never in that player box. Do you ever get any of those perks? Is this, you just don't want to be seen? First of all, after the number of matches we've sat through over all these years, I sat through every one of Pete's matches for five years. I don't need to go sit in the box for anyone's matches any longer. But number two, if I were to go and sit to, in John Isner's box, for a U.S. Open quarterfinal, and Stan Wawrinka looks at, was watching TV and says, oh, well, Nate's going to John Isner's matches. Or I'm in Novak's box, and Roger Federer says, what's he doing sitting with Novak? Yeah, you know, what's going on? So we keep it very uh, simple, and we generally don't want to create the appearance of impropriety, any favoritism or anything like that, and we don't go to matches. You've been spending a lot of time with the Swiss to develop that type of neutrality. Um, do you take satisfaction when the players do well, when you got all four of the semifinalists at a major tournament or a couple guys in the final or even one of your guys brings home the trophy? Is that rewarding for you? To a certain degree, it is, yes. I mean, that is the entire purpose of our lives, to help these top players win tournaments. It's as much a job security kind of thing as it is personal pride. Because to be quite honest, Pete, Ron and I have been stringing rackets for a long time. It's not difficult. 
So, wow, I really strung some great rackets today. Really doesn't come into play because we <laughs> string the rackets the same way all the time. We do exactly what the player wants. We uh, drop them off earlier than the player needs them there. And it's, it's really routine. What I don't want to see, though, is the opposite of that feeling of pride, Pete. And it's if something goes wrong, shanks a forehand, breaks a string, oh boy, you know, ends up feeling that he didn't get the racket strung tightly enough. That's when we start sweating. Have there been some of those moments where you've, you've seen that happen and you just go, oh boy? Uh, let me think. I know about 10 years ago during a rain delay, Roger asked us to restring a racket that he broke on a shank. Uh, you know, he still had nine in his bag, so it wasn't like it was very stressful. But, uh, you know, it didn't get to the court, but when Marty Fish was playing one day at Wimbledon, we were at Orangi dropping off rackets, and he was out there practicing, and it was an unusually and surprisingly hot day. And he said, Nate, it's so hot, the balls are flying all over the place. What can we do? I go, well, you've got eight rackets there. Keep two, give me six, and I'll run back up the hill and restring them. How much tighter do you want to go? One pound, two pounds, three pounds? And he decided, and I ran up the hill into uh, the Wimbledon Village, restrung his rackets, and got them back to him before his match went on. Do you have a track record of, of you know, how many tournaments you guys have won? No, I really don't. Ron t tends to follow the numbers a little bit more than I do, but I do not. You guys take a bunch of rackets out on court with them. Uh, about how many on average are guys taking out, or what's the range between 6 and right. 12 or something? Right. John Isner is probably our, string, our, our lowest volume stringer. Of course, he plays with a string that's all polyester. It's a 130 gauge, which is pretty thick, 16 gauge, and doesn't have to worry about breaking strings. So he'll probably do, for a grand slam, seven rackets for a match. And among those seven rackets, he may do five different tensions. He's very sensitive about tensions. So he'll do you know, one or two low tensions, one or two high tensions, and then a pair of rackets for each of two rackets, for two tensions that he plans on using during the course of the match. Now, unlike John, Stan Lavrinka will want 10 rackets or 11 rackets, depending on how many is broken in the week or two leading up to the Grand Slam, every match. If they give you some back after the match and the, the strings, they haven't used it and you have to cut out the strings, is there a little bit of futility? Just, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm just going to restring this thing even though they never even used it. I know it's part of the job, but it's part of you just kicking yourself at that moment. Actually, it really isn't. Because it's been unused, number one, I don't have to replace the overgrip, so that's a good thing for me. Saves me a couple of minutes in racket preparation. And I'm cutting the strings out anyway. It really makes no difference to me. Whether it was just in the bag for him to think, wow, I've really got a lot of rackets. I'm really comfortable now. Or whether he's used it, you know, for a minute or two, you know, to serve out the match. It just doesn't matter to me.
what if you see them breaking the racket? Fit of anger, they smack it on the court, and the thing snaps. I love it. <laughs> Number one, it can turn around. It can turn around a match. If someone's really angry and things are not going his way, it can turn around a match just to have that stress relief. Um, it's also one less string, one racket I have to string that night, isn't it? <laughs> so Stan likes to break a racket or two, not to keep bringing up Stan, but instead of 11 rackets for each match, now he gets a maximum of 10. <laughs> What's the fewest rackets you've gotten back after a match? Ooh. You know, Marcos Baghdad has had a little, uh, a little scene huh. where he famously broke some blue rackets one day in a match versus Stan Wawrinka. And although he lost that match, so I didn't get any rackets back for restringing the next day. He was flying out of town. Uh, he would have been down to six or seven. Yeah, that was the one where he, he didn't even take them out of the bag. You are he correct. Just... He broke two rackets that were still in the racket bag. Oh my goodness. Uh, as you work with these guys, are, are you developing friendships with them? Is there kind of a relationship or is it very much just transactional? It depends on the player. We're we hang around the courts a lot, as you know. So we string in the morning, distribute rackets late morning, early afternoon, wait around for matches to get played or practices to get played, then collect rackets for the next day's stringing. And then we go home sometime in the late afternoon. So if a player has any interest at all at just sitting down and BSing, we're there. We're more than happy to sit down and chat with them. We have some very good friends among our clients. Some, it's more transactional, more business. Along those lines, when you get into the customation, are you primarily just taking orders from these guys and meeting their specs, or are you collaborating with them? Do you suggest hey what if you did this do you know, and come up with what the perfect solution might be for that play it's for stringing only meaning we've already built 10 rackets or they've got their rackets set and they've used them all and they're comfortable with their rackets so on the road it's just a matter of what's the weather going to be like and then they will decide on tensions if it's about the customizing of the rackets that takes a little bit more discussion what is it about this racket that you like? If something goes wrong with a racket in your bag in terms of the way it feels, the way it's playing, what is it that goes wrong? Is the handle too big? Is the handle too small? Are the tensions too low? Are the tensions too high? Because, you know, some players like me, if the tension got too low, I couldn't hit the ball on the court. But I never played with a racket that I thought was strung too tightly. So you just find, find out through discussing with a player, whether it's string tension for tomorrow's match or customizing handle back in Tampa, Florida, where we're located, what drives you nuts? What is what makes a racket bad to you, to that player? And once we have that discussion and it's settled, we've proven to them that we can deliver the, the service, then it's pretty routine. So what are, you've, you've talked a little bit about the grip. You know, I, I look at this, I'm, I see strings and I see a grip and I see frame. What are all the little different things that you can do to manipulate the way that racket performs for that player? Yes, and it's, it's not so much the way the racket performs, but it's what the player 
is most comfortable with. So I'm making some rackets for a retired longtime client of ours, Fernando Gonzalez today. He plays now with a Yonex racket and he likes a little bit of that hockey stick knob on the end of his tennis racket like you would find on the end of a hockey stick. So we build a big knob underneath the grip so that it flares out, the Yonex butt cap flares out much more than it would otherwise. And then we put a regular grip over the top of it so it's cushion, doesn't give him blisters, but he can put that pinky down low on the racket handle and feel that wider flare of the butt cap so that he can swing away as hard as he wants and know it's not gonna slide out of his hand. That is Pete just one of the things. Of course, then you go to Pete Sampras. He used to play with fairway leather grips. And of course he had uh, a hugely sensitive right hand so that when he held the racket like Fernando Gonzalez did, way down at the bottom of the racket handle and put that pinky right around the very bottom and widest part of the butt cap flare that it felt exactly right. And that was all a matter of circumference for him. So I had to pick the exact right piece of leather. Maybe three or four out of 10 grips would be the right thickness for him. Is the customizing process something that happens frequently? Uh, you're probably making the rackets a lot, but in terms of coming up with that wish list for the player and, and finding what works for them, is that something that they do a lot? Is it annual review? Is it ride the train as long as you possibly can, years and years, and change only if you need to? What's typically the way the guys approach it? It's typically Strong and steady, keep it the same. Players don't like change just for the sake of change. However, there are players that want to change something every time. That's where it gets a little stressful, a little bit of a pain in the neck. When you talk about conditions and, and impacting, and you mentioned Marty Fish and the those weather conditions, what are the conditions that impact what a player may want in the string tension? And what's their reaction based on the conditions of humidity or heat or cold? What are they usually doing to compensate for what they're noticing in the atmosphere? Number one, it's all about the expected level of control that a player has. Power versus control. That's something within each of us and every player has an expected level of power. The things that affect the way the ball flies, how fast the ball flies off the racket, are like you said, heat. The balls are harder in the higher temperatures. They're more bouncy. Altitude, of course, if you go up in altitude, the ball flies further. Nowadays, the roughness of the court is a big indicator of how fast the ball will fly through the air. A very rough court, I mean it's sandy, it's gritty, will fluff up the felt cover of a tennis ball faster than a more slick or smooth court. So the bigger the ball is, the slower it flies through the air, which 
is a which is a ball flight characteristic that players need to overcome and they will typically do that with lower tension now it doesn't matter whether it's the type of ball that is causing the felt to fluff up and the ball to travel slower and play heavier or it's the court surface that causes the ball to have those conditions and make the ball fly through the air slower it doesn't matter what causes it but we need to compensate by adjusting tension and there's a tricky one for you pete there's a tricky one in indian wells every year because they have rough what i will call slow courts the ball stops bites into the court and fluffs up the ball but it is desert conditions so the air is hot we're at a little bit of altitude it's desert like conditions the air is very fast through which the ball travels however the courts are rough and slow that's a tricky spot where a lot of players have a little bit of difficulty and i would think especially if they go from playing in the heat of the day at one in the afternoon to playing second at night at you know, 9 p.m when the temperature is swung 35 yes, exactly degrees right it's the hottest we can be on tour in the course of a year you know be 100 degrees or it can sometimes be the coldest at night <laughs> <laughs> one tournament is different for you guys um you talked about traveling with your stable of athletes to the masters to the slams being a masters you would go to cincinnati every year but you guys are more than servicing your clients there you're overseeing the entire stringing operation for the tournament how did that come about and what is that like in terms of just being so vastly different um that came about let me think of the year 2000 2001 when the flories were running the tournament and they had a few issues with their on-site stringing service provider and wondered if I could help. And I said, I'll tell you anything I know. I'll help you out everything I can do, except I can't do your on-site stringing service. I work for Pete Sampras and he requires that I be there for him at all matches and work only for him. Well, then Pete retired a year or two later and I got a call from Bruce Flory and he said, would you be interested in doing it? And if so, how would you pull this off, Nate? <laughs> I, I told him, you know, I hired the, the best trainers that I could get my hands on. We'll have plenty of them and I won't be a jerk to you. And that's how we got the job. At a Grand Slam, most of your guys are only playing singles, which you hope they play all seven matches. Um, and, you know, depending on how good the week's going, you may see 50 plus matches in total. Uh, last year in Cincinnati, there were 210 matches. How many guys do you need to bring in to complement your team there? We bring in six or seven additional stringers. And regarding the last question you asked, it is a week that is entirely different than our normal week. Our normal week, as I was saying earlier, we string rackets in the morning and we, for a couple, three hours, we go to the tournament site, drop off, pick up, eat some lunch, 
go home in the afternoon, have a couple hours to hopefully, you know, have a couple hours to relax, sit down, eat dinner, and then we get to stringing late afternoon, early evening. In Cincinnati, you're in one place, on-site stringing tent, all day, every day, from seven in the morning until midnight. You're not stringing the whole time, but early in the tournament, when all the players are still in, it is very busy and it's just all day, every day for three days in a row. Then guys start losing. We send some stringers home. So the work level is slightly more manageable and we try to keep that going through the end of the tournament. It's very different from our much more organized, predictable and controllable workload that we usually uh, work through at a normal tournament. And you guys get there a few days early for the practice days in Cincinnati as well. So give or take 10, 11 days. Yes. Ballpark. How many rackets did you guys string there last year? 650 rackets. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah, it is. And, and many of them you probably strung more than once. That's the idea. Yes. <laughs> now, the other thing that's different when you're doing this in Cincinnati, a guy could be in the middle of the match and not be happy with how the racket's playing and send it off and want it back as quickly as possible. What's the quickest turnaround? And is that the most stress you'll be under in the entire season? Interesting. Uh, it, it requires us to do a couple of things. Depending on this player's history with us. Andre Rublev made the semifinals a couple of years ago and he had two racket speed. They were different brands of racket. Now he didn't play with a fragile string, thankfully. If he had broken a string during one of his matches, yes, we would have had to get somebody on it right away, get it done as fast as possible because he would be playing with a different manufacturer's racket until we got his favorite racket back to him. But most guys have a bag with rackets in there. They might have a favorite among their four, five, six rackets and want it strung during the match. We have to weigh a couple of things. Is the stringer who has strung this player's racket up to then in the tournament is he available is he out to lunch has he just put on another player's racket on a stringing machine if so then it's going to be a 40 minute wait for the player on court i will say make the call forget it we'll put it on someone else's stringing machine who's available at the time maybe sitting down and eating lunch interrupting their lunch and has the stringing machine available, put the racket on that machine, which is not optimal. We always like to string a certain player's rackets with the same machine by the same person throughout the tournament, eliminating the variables of different people, different machines. But in a case like you mentioned, when it's an emergency, and it's an emergency for 20 minutes, not an emergency for 45 minutes, so I'll make the call, we'll put it on a different machine, strung by a different player, uh, stringer I mean, and we'll take care of that player as fast as possible. You started working with Pete in 1990 and it's hardly anyone's playing the way he played. 
back then. How much has the game changed? It has changed completely. <laughs> completely. Even at indoor tournaments, Pete, there's no serve and volley. If a player's not in complete tank mode, there is almost no serve and volley tennis. There are no more fast points because everyone runs like the wind back and forth, side to side on the baseline. It is much more one-dimensional, the game these days. Even Ivo Karlovic can't get it past Novak Djokovic. So the ball is going to come back much more so than it used to. And that is because of players, number one, but strings. The strings nowadays allow players to put much more spin on the ball, which allows a player at the baseline to make the ball bounce right at the feet of an attacking player. Even on grass, which is ridiculous. How big a factor is that equipment change? Huge. I mean, I, I love Pete Sampras. He was great to me. And I would love to see him at his peak play someone like Rafa Nadal, who have diametrically opposite games. Aggressive and attacking versus retrieving and, you know, passing. Um, but Pete's serve was so good that it would allow him to hold a lot of service games. But when, you find that ball, yourself... when that ball comes back and, and Rafa, you know, gets a swing out of forehand, I think Pete would be rudely surprised. Do you find yourself watching matches a little differently, looking to see, you know, what they're doing, how they're gripping that racket, how it's playing off the strings? Not really, to be honest. I, I, I you know, like at Cincinnati, we get to see all the players and all the strings. There's very few players who play with anything significantly different than anyone else. Yeah, Ivo Karlovic, we customize his rackets. He has an over a five inch circumference handle, but it's not about strings for him. You know, he plays with the regular string that a lot of other guys use. So when I see players out there hitting these outrageous shots, you know, cranking a forehand from the service line that is an inch and a half over the net and lands on the other service line. No, that's that shot was never able to be played in the past. And now it's just a matter of another top spin forehand for some players. All right, let's take this down a little bit to the, uh, the club level player. How much, if any, should a club level player worry about trying to customize their racket? Wow, it really depends on the, on the player. Number one, if they play enough to be very familiar with their rackets. If they have more than one racket and it's the same type, so you've got two duplicates of the same racket, the person needs to be enough of an engineer to realize whether the rackets play differently or they play exactly the same, and if so, why? Some people are just innately curious about why one racket feels different than the other one. So at the first stage, Pete, for a club player to be 
interested in customizing of rackets, they need to be able to be good enough to pay attention to what made me play better today. What is it about racket A versus racket B that I played better with? So that's the first thing. You've got to be good enough and aware enough of your equipment to do that. But also, number two, you've got to be able to try different things and notice how that affects the way a player plays. I knew, Pete, when I was in seventh, eighth grade, when I played with a, a racket with gut strings, I loved it. So that was a game changer for me. I said, this stuff is unbelievable. And I strung my rackets with those gut strings. Then I put, when I started working in the customizing industry, I started adding some weight to my racket. And it was like a game changer. All of a sudden, I didn't have to work so hard to hit the ball with pace where I wanted it to go. Again, the level of power and control mixed just right for my racket with an extra six grams of weight on it. With gut strings in there, I was a much better player than without those two simple things. So for a regular recreational player, they've got to try some things in order to learn whether these changes they're making makes them play better or worse. And they'll know right away if it's something that makes them play better. If you're a rec player, get out to the courts two, three times a week. How often would you be restringing your racket? Well, it depends what kind of string they use. If they use a synthetic string that is a multi-filament that stretches a lot and they have a low tolerance for loose strings, they're going to have to get it strung fairly often. I mean, there's a rule of thumb that says you get your rackets strung as often per year as you play per week. But if you're playing with a fairly dead string and it goes dead but is not going to break, like these polyester strings, they'll never break for some people. Then you've got to alter that little uh, equation and you've got to get your racket strung every month if you're playing with a polyester string because it will give you absolutely nothing back in terms of resiliency. It'll just be a dead bunch of strings that allow you to swing out pretty hard. To some rec players, you're probably almost speaking a foreign language, but how much difference can the right equipment make for just a regular club player? Can It can make a huge amount of difference if the player is good and they're not playing with the right equipment. So that player with the right equipment is allowed to play without having to overcome that tiny handle with a two-year-old grip on there that's on the verge of falling out of the player's hand and they get to concentrate more on playing the game instead of fighting the equipment. If the racket's strung at the, just the right tension, it allows a player to swing as hard as they want and keep the ball in. So that is, it allows a player to hit the ball harder while maintaining the amount of control they need. That's a big deal for a good player. I got a couple of buddies. I live down here in Florida, other coasts from you, but a couple of buddies who they just leave their racket in the trunk of their car. How bad of an idea is that? <laughs> well, it used to be a really bad idea because if it was hot, like it is down here every day, <laughs> um, the old graphite rackets, when they would reach a certain temperature, would collapse on themselves. 
and the racket would be ruined. It might not happen in the trunk of the car versus if you put it on the back window ledge. So if it was in the direct sunlight, <laughs> that used to happen a lot. Nowadays, the carbon fiber is much better quality. They don't have to use so much resin and things like that to make the racket. So it happens much less often. But if you're putting your racket and strings, mind you, through extremes in temperature, it's not going to behave as well over time as if you just brought it inside and kept it, you know, in the kitchen, in the closet, or in the living room, wherever you want. I want to close with the set pieces, as I do with every episode of Credentials Only, and start with what are podcasts or newsletters you're using to keep yourself informed and or entertained? Yeah, it's all about the entertainment for me, uh, and I am a big podcast listener. <clears throat> Not only when I string rackets am I listening to a podcast, but I ride my bike for my physical exercise on a regular basis, and I'm also listening to podcasts. I like a lot of the NPR podcasts, like uh, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me and Radio Lab. But I'm also uh, a big follower of everything about Tesla Motors. And there are a huge number of podcasts available about Tesla vehicles and the investment in Tesla shares that I follow with great interest. I have a feeling that answer is going to lead right to some of these answers. Who are your most valuable follows on social media? The posts that you do not want to miss. Uh, interesting. Um, number one, all of our clients. So if they're announcing, you know, I just had uh, a, a skiing accident. I broke my elbow. Well, that's the information I need to know. <laughs> <clears throat> if they're pulling out of a tournament. I mean, that's how we found out. Indian Wells had been canceled on social media. Um, so all of our players, if their girlfriends have Instagram accounts, I will follow them. And Darren Ravel is, I think, a very good follow, and I like a lot of the stuff he puts out there. Who famously once actually embedded with you guys for a day during the U.S. Open, if I remember correctly. Exactly right. There you go. Uh, what are a couple books, and for you, I suspect the audiobooks are quite popular, but what are a couple books you would recommend to others? I've read a few books over the last 10 years that I have really enjoyed. Several of them have been made into movies, so I'm not so sure we're going to get anybody to read these books any longer. But uh, Lone Survivor by Marcus Luttrell was made into a movie. That was a great read. Excuse me. Probably my favorite book that I ever read, though, um, was called A Civil Action. And that was made into a John Travolta movie. The book was way better than the movie. There's another military book that I read and was enthralled with, a book called House to House, about Army infantry guys uh, freeing the city of Fallujah during the Gulf War. Incredible. What are you streaming? What shows are, are you downloading and just pouring yourself through right now? You know what? I got to be honest, Pete. I'm really not much of a TV viewer anymore. I watch more YouTube than anything else. And anything in particular on YouTube? A lot of things about Tesla vehicles 
and there, the investment opportunity that follows that, a lot about the Tampa Bay Lightning. I watch, uh, you know, every Lightning game I can and listen to podcasts on the Tampa Bay Lightning because I know how good they are and how much fun it is to watch them. What's your favorite sports memory as a kid? Well, although I was athletic as a kid, I was still skinny back then, Pete. I don't know if you know that about me. <laughs> so I was never the star center on the basketball team or anything. But um, I won in my first, basically my first organized competitive sports team was a soccer, soccer league. And I won the Hartwell Award in Glastonbury, Connecticut which was given to one of the best players, but who is also the best teammate to his teammates and his friends. And I won that award as my, the first trophy I ever won in my life. And I was very proud of that. That's a pretty good one to get, that's for sure. Lastly, as I end every episode, you go to all these tournaments, you get credentials. Do you collect them? And if so, where? You know, I do. <laughs> and I've, I've been on the road since 1998. And I have a lot of credentials, Pete, which really, if you think about it, I probably shouldn't be collecting them. <clears throat> but I keep them in the bottom drawer of my dresser because that is typically when I unpack from the last tournament is when I'm packing up to go on my next tournament. And I'll reach in my soft bag, as we discussed before, and pull out the credential from the previous week, throw it in the drawer, and get set to go off to my next week's adventure. Well, can't wait to see you back out on the road at some of those adventures and really appreciate you taking the time to join me on Credentials Only. My pleasure, anytime. It's pretty easy to see how Nate can strike up many friendships while hanging out around the practice courts and players' lounges on the tennis tour. I really appreciate Nate taking the time for this conversation, and thanks to you for listening. Please take a moment to leave a review wherever you are listening. And if you liked it, well, tell a friend. Don't forget, you can find more information on what we discussed in the show notes on credentialsonly.com. And while you're there, drop us your email address. And that way, we will be sliding into your inbox whenever we have a new episode to share. Mike Boucher edits Credentials Only, which is a Holter Media production. Thanks again for listening.